Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey, and uh, it's been like a week and a half since I've last done a show. I feel like it's been forever. It's how much I love doing this show, so I want to thank everybody that's still listening out there. And I'm probably over-dramatizing it in my head, but uh, thank you for still tuning into the show uh, that should be the longest you ever have to wait between episodes of Rock Strikes 10, like I said, because I love doing the show so much, and I thank everybody out there for their support and spreading the word over at cnjradio.com, on the Rock Strikes 10 Facebook, and the personal emails. I can't get enough of them, so thank you, everybody out there. And I guess it's apropos that on tonight's show, <laughs> I'm going to do the best comebacks or at least 10 comebacks in music that I would like to focus on. This was a listener-requested theme, so I want to thank Jeff. Listener Jeff, you're a friend of mine. Thank you so much for the idea, and, uh, you know, uh, some of the suggestions you had, we, uh, you know, great minds think alike. They're going to be on this show here tonight. I'm going to pull some of my own out here for it, but uh, I hope you enjoyed overall, and... You know, it's interesting. It's going to be kind of one era here tonight. Uh, you know, these are the comebacks that I'm pretty familiar with. And, you know, I'm going to attach some of the stories to the the downfall and the and the comeback before we play each track. So, hey, who doesn't love a good behind-the-music story? So, here you go. The first band tonight, uh, a band that, uh, you know, it's funny. I was listening to uh, Eddie Trunk's show on Sirius XM. Uh, last week, and a caller called in. I, I don't know if the caller was trying to get a rise out of him or not, but the uh, the caller basically said, hey, do you really think that Deep Purple should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And Eddie's like, absolutely, they're the number one snub out there. And the guy's like, well, why? They only have one good song. And he was like, have you heard any of their other albums? And the guy was like, no. I was like, why would you... Eddie was so much nicer to that caller than I would have been. He basically took the diplomatic route, which I understand, and be like, hey, before you make that kind of judgment, maybe you want to go listen to the other albums. That was just a funny exchange that uh, I wanted to bring up. But it does tie in. I'm going to talk to you about Deep Purple here first on the show tonight. Now, you know, and that's kind of the general consensus of, uh, you know, it seems like American rock fans, not all of them, but... And I'm not down American rock fans, once again. I don't want to get any kind of misconceptions out there. But, you know, the, their homeland in England, I mean, they are like royalty over there. I mean, they consider them, you know, like right after the Beatles and Zeppelin and Sabbath, Purple is probably the next one that comes up for sure. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt there. Uh, you know, you, if I have any European f- listeners out there, please let me know. Because that's the kind of information I'm getting back over here. Now, why are they on the comeback list here? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, Their most famous lineup, which is called the Mark II lineup, Ian Gillen, Richie Blackmore, Roger Glover, John Lord, and Ian Pace, the band that did the quote-unquote one good song. No, their their most successful album, Machine Head, which went uh, double platinum in America at last count, that is the definitive most famous lineup, for sure, and, and rightfully so. Now, that lineup ceased to exist after the album Who Do We Think We Are in 1973. And, uh, you know, David Coverdale came in in 73. Glenn Hughes, those guys are great. 
you know, uh, and you know, I think after that particular lineup, a couple albums, Richie Blackmore left the band, started Rainbow, and then after the Come Taste the Band album, you know, they they kind of seemed to you know not exist as Deep Purple. David Coverdale left to form White Snake. Tommy Boland did a solo thing. You know, Deep Purple was kind of, you know, probably not coming back, it seemed like. But fast forward all the way from 1976 all the way to 1984, the Mark II lineup, the very famous lineup that I discussed earlier, the Did the Machine Head album. They came back and got in the studio and put out this album that was a monster. It's, uh, you know, I think even Classic Rock Magazine voted this like the number one reunion album of all time. And that's that's not a far stretch at all. I mean... The reason I have on the comeback list, I mean, it's obvious. Once again, they took some so much time off between Come Taste the Band and this album. But not only that, but the chart success, like, came back in a big way. You know, like, they you know, they always kind of went, after Machine Head, they pretty much just went gold consistently in the States. And this one went platinum and got some got a lot of play on the radio. I remember that. And it, it's a very well-respected rock album. This thing just flat out rocked. And and for fans of Deep Purple, you know, you're going to know this song. This is kind of the obvious song. But for those of you who haven't heard this, you got to hear this song. This is one of the great rock and roll songs of all time. It's just epic. So I'm going to play the title track off of Deep Purple's 1984 comeback album. Here you go. Turn this one up real loud. This one's called Perfect Strangers.
Alright, that was Deep Purple with their big comeback, Perfect Strangers, from the album of the same name. And, uh, you know, I, I realized um, I failed to mention the Stones in that list of iconic British bands. But yeah, uh, that still makes it a top five. So Deep Purple would be in the top five of uh, British rock bands of all time, I, w- I would think so, for sure. So, yeah, moving on, uh, you know, on to uh, onto some stuff from American Soil. Uh, this is probably one of the great rock comebacks of all time. Uh, I'm going to talk about Aerosmith here a little bit. Uh, that was obviously going to be on here. And so the the story on Aerosmith and their uh, rise and fall and rise again was, you know, due to the obvious cliches of rock and roll, drugs and creative differences and alcohol and all that stuff. And, you know, it's funny, even their, like, their their most uh, down-and-out period, they were still putting out records, and I actually liked those records, uh, you know, like, when they were just an absolute mess, they were still putting out pretty damn quality rock albums, you know, even though Joe Perry and Brad Whitford left the band, Rock in a Hard Place is one of those great undiscovered albums of all time, for sure. So, timeline-wise, you know, Aerosmith, you know, huge in the 70s, riding high, uh, you know, after Toys in the Attic and Rocks and Draw the Line, those all went like platinum many times over. And then, you know, Night in the Rush just went platinum, right? It's like, you know, bands nowadays would kill for these kind of numbers. Like, their worst period are like great numbers in today's music economy. But uh, once the 70s drew to a close, and, you know, like I said, Perry and Whitford had left the band. They did Rock in a Hard Place, which only went gold. And... Then they, uh, you know, reunited the lineup in 1985, did Dumb With Mirrors, and that only went gold. So, like, for a band that was al- always having their albums, like, in the top 10, they were, like, in the top 30 or top 40, you know. They had they had, they had, had dwindled on the charts here, but most importantly, they were all going to die soon. So, you know, they all had to get sober and, you know, refocus and everything like that. You know, and there, there's a lot of fans of Aerosmith that really don't like the band, uh, you know, anything from the comeback period on. But, you know, I was, uh, I guess I come from a different uh, place in that. You know, I was growing up and I, I didn't know much of anything about Aerosmith. I'm one of those kids where the first time I heard Aerosmith was when Run DMC did Walk This Way with him. You know, I... Then, I, you know, of course, I went back and listened to all the old stuff, and I, I love it. You know, it is their best stuff for sure. But, you know, I don't hate the comeback records like a lot of, you know, more hardcore fans that grew up with the band, you know, while they were happening. So, you know, I don't hate Permanent Vacation or Pump. I really like those albums a lot, and I, I you know, you know, Get a Grip and Nine Lives are all right. They're about half good, but, you know don't have any use for just push play but i like tonkin on bobo a lot because of course it's a back to the roots straight up blues album uh but i digress uh, we're talking about the permanent vacation album once aerosmith had reunited on done with mirrors but they were they kind of their comeback was delayed by an album uh they got uh, you know they got a bunch of extra song doctors to come in and help them write big hits and everything and you know there's something to be said for that good and bad but, uh, you know, Permanent Vacation proved to be a hit. I mean, it, like, like quadrupled their sales. You know, they went from gold on Done With Mirrors to having a 5 million seller with Permanent Vacation. So, you know, 
you can't say it didn't work. Uh, but, you know, Permanent Vacation is an interesting album because it has a lot of great rock and roll songs, a lot of deep tracks. I mean, you've heard Dude Looks Like a Lady and Angel and Ragdoll. Those are huge songs. But, uh, you know, I'm going to play you one of my favorite album tracks from Permanent Vacation. So uh, here you go. This is, a, this is a nice rocker. I like this one a lot. This one's called Magic Touch. Here you go.
That was Aerosmith with Magic Touch from their big comeback album in 1987, Permanent Vacation. So go check that record out if you've never given it a chance. Like I said, it's got a lot of great rock and roll tracks, some cool blues jams, there's a Beatles cover on there, and hell, there's even a Frank Zappa quote. How can you go wrong? And I'm not going to tell you what it is or where it is, so if you know it or you find out about it later, send me a message and, and tell me where it is. Get that extra rock credibility because, you know, that's what it's all about, right? <laughs> Alright, uh, the next act I'm going to talk about here is uh, a fellow you may have heard of. You know, he, he might be a little obscure. A uh, guy by the name of George Harrison. Of course, George Harrison, one of the Beatles. Uh, why is he on the comeback list, you may ask. If you didn't know, uh, you know, George had a very solid solo career, I must say. You know, he always did pretty well. Uh, you know, w when he left the Beatles and released All Things Must Pass. That was a huge album. I think it's done about five or six million so far. Last time I checked the sales, I'm looking at right now. There it is, six million. All right. Yes, I am fact-checking during the show. Might make it better in the long run. <laughs> but, yeah, but after that, you know, all of his albums in the States uh, went gold consistently, which is totally fine. Uh, you know, especially there was so much uh, competition out there in the 70s for Beatles solo material because... Every single Beatle was putting out solo material. Lennon, McCartney, Ringo, and George, you know. So, And there's always debates on who had the better solo material, but that's not what I'm going to focus on right here. I'm just going to say that George Harrison, you know, throughout the entire decade of the 70s, every time he put a record out in America, went gold, had good radio support, charted well, you know, the whole thing. Uh, once the 80s rolled around, he pretty much almost disappeared from the charts completely or it dwindled quite a bit he had no certification for uh, somewhere in England and the album Gone Tropo was a disaster I mean he, he went from right here it says number 11 on somewhere in England 1981 1982 Gone Tropo comes out doesn't even crack the top 100 it stops at 108 and that that's a disaster right there you know, personally, I've never heard that album, so I, I don't know if it's any good or not, but uh, nobody seemed to have bought it, that's for sure. So 1982, he has a big flop of a record, and he basically takes five years off from recording, goes and actually directs movies. I remember that. He did that uh, Madonna movie. I Ah, uh, crud, what's the name of that? Shanghai Surprise, that's the one. He did Shanghai Surprise with Madonna and Sean Penn, which I've never seen. <laughs> So, who knows? Madonna films generally aren't very good at all. But, uh, you know, I, I digress once again. Uh, George finally, he hooked up with Jeff Lynne of ELO fame. And a great move. Uh, they went to the studio and did an album. Uh, put, out, put it out uh, once again the same year that Aerosmith came back. I guess the, the, the boomers were really out in droves buying records. Because Cloud9 uh, cracked the top ten. So he went from 108 to number 8 peaking at eight so a full 100 positions on the chart better if that's not a comeback i don't know what is of course it went platinum uh had a couple of hit singles off of it uh, you know i remember even uh, rock radio playing stuff like devil's radio which is a great song off of that album uh, i'm gonna play you probably what is still probably my personal favorite george harrison solo song it's it's a fun song it always sticks in my head of course it's a big throwback to his days with the beatles uh, you'll obviously get a feel from that listening to it. So here you go. Here's George Harrison 
talking about his days with the Beatles with this song, When We Was Fab. Back then, long time ago, when grass was green. That was George Harrison with a little help from his friends, pun intended. 
that was when we was fab. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, I mentioned Jeff Lynn to produce the album. He, of course, plays almost every instrument on that album along with George. Uh, but then he brought in some people such as Elton John, Eric Clapton, Gary Wright, Ringo Starr. There you go. So the piano on that track is either played by Elton John or Gary Wright. So it doesn't even specify on my CD who played on what. But there's some pretty cool factoids there for you. And, you know, I'm I'm guilty, and uh, rightfully so, and I'm fine with it, of uh, on Rock Strikes 10 of not playing the obvious hits and the big singles that you heard a billion times. But, uh, you know, another reason that's such a massive comeback is... You know, the the big single off that album has got my mind set on you. And uh that was a number one single. So uh that's uh that's that's a big deal. You know, in the eighties, uh an ex Beatle having a number one single, that was a pretty big deal. So uh good good on you, George. Always liked your solo stuff. So Alright. Next one I'm gonna talk about is uh, another icon in music for sure, and uh, you know you can't talk about great comebacks in music history without bringing up this guy. It's such a cliche statement, but it's absolutely true. I'm gonna talk to you about Johnny Cash. <laughs> okay, so you know, of course, everybody loves Johnny Cash now and everything, but uh, there was a time in this world where Johnny Cash was not a happening guy. You know, at least uh, on the uh, overall scene. Uh, especially, you know, he d- he did okay during the 70s, but, you know, his popularity had dwindled quite a bit, and by the 80s, he was almost non-existent. I mean, I, I remember the first time I heard of Johnny was on the Highwaymen single, so that's the only time I'd really heard of him myself personally, so he was, you know, he wasn't on the radar at all, and, uh, you know, he... Even getting dropped by you know Sony after a while, that's that had to hurt. I mean, he was on Sony for forever. I mean, like pretty much since right right after the Sun stuff. I mean, that's all Sun and Columbia Records. That's all tied in. You know, he was on that label since the mid '50s, and then they just drop him. You know, in the mid '80s, that that had to have stung quite a bit. You know, he puts out uh, some records. He's pretty much getting down to like re-recording his old stuff and. You know, it was just nothing creative really happening for him, and no one's taking notice. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden, Rick Rubin tracks him down and pitches him an idea about how to really be the Johnny Cash that everybody knows and loves and wants to buy his records. And, you know, he pitched the idea of recording music in his living room with just a guitar, and that's it. And that proved to be very successful. Now, it didn't light the charts on fire or anything, honestly. That first American Recordings album in 94, you know, people took notice. It just it wasn't a big, massive monster. It didn't even get certified gold or platinum or anything. still hasn't, uh, but it was a comeback in a creative sense, and that's also very important, too, is to kind of get your brain back and get your creativity back on track, and I think it's very apropos to talk about the Johnny Cash comeback. Of course, down the road, you know, once he became sick and he put out, you know, the big cover of Nine Inch Nails Hurt on the American 4 album, yeah, everybody started buying it. That record went platinum and everything. But, uh, you know, I want to talk about that early period, the early American Recordings albums. My personal favorite Johnny Cash album of all time is actually the second album he did for American Records, uh, the Unchained album. And 
Yes, uh, I swear this band probably has a permanent fixture on every episode at this point, but it's basically Johnny Cash backed up by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and it's a great album, and that's what I'm going to play you here on this show. Uh, like I said, this album didn't set the world on fire, but you know people started to take notice, and it was it was a build up to the big comeback. So here you go. It's my show. <laughs> I'm going to play you Johnny Cash and the Heartbreakers with a song called Sea of Heartbreak. One, two, one, two, three, four. The light in the harbor Don't shine for me I'm like a lost ship Adrift on the sea The sea of heartbreak Lost love and loneliness Memories of your caress So divine how I wish You were mine again, my dear I'm on this sea of tears Sea of heartbreak Oh, how did I lose you? Oh, where did I fail? Why did you leave me? Always the same This sea of heartbreak Lost love and loneliness Memories of your caress So divine how I wish You were mine again, my dear I'm on this sea of tears Sea of heartbreak Just to sail back to shore Back to your arms once more Come to my rescue Oh, come here to me Take me and keep me Away from the sea Sea of heartbreak Lost love and loneliness Memories of your caress So divine how I wish You were mine again, my dear I'm on this sea of tears Sea of heartbreak Sea of heartbreak Sea of heartbreak Sea of heartbreak That was Johnny Cash and the Heartbreakers with Sea of Heartbreak from the album Unchained. Uh, For my money, if you only ever buy one Johnny Cash album in your life, make it that album. It's it's the only one I listen to by him on a consistent basis, honestly. I've heard that record more than Folsom Prison or, you know, anything else. Uh, So, yeah, check it out. Now for something completely different going from the basic bare bones living room recordings of Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash all the way to a guy who is known for the overproduction and the bombast and it's the big 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 epic operatic rock sound gonna play something by Meatloaf here 
Now, you know, it's it's funny. I never used to care at all about meatloaf. Uh, I, I bought the Bat Out of Hell record a couple of years ago on a whim, and I loved it. I, I thought it was a really great, genius album. It's It definitely deserves to be as successful as it has been, for sure. There's no question about that in my mind. So uh, if you don't have Bat Out of Hell, go get that album. It's a classic rock and roll album. Now... You know, I remember just, you know, I used, I used to read tons of music magazines when I was a kid. I still do, obviously, but, you know, I remember reading about Meatloaf trying to make a comeback with Bad of Hell 2, and I was like, oh, yeah, sure, that's going to happen. What a desperate-sounding album title. It's going to fail, and it did everything but that. It was massive, and, you know, it's, it's weird because Meatloaf never went away. He just had, he, he was just... He just fell from grace, but, you know, I got a hand to him. He never gave up. I mean, he went through going broke. He lost his voice, alcohol. I mean, you know, the works. I mean, that guy was put through the ringer, and he never gave up. The story of his comeback is a great story for sure. I mean, he basically went into bad hell to the same exact way that he got famous with the first one. He, you know, worked on it really hard with Jim Steinman as uh, his you know, his co-writer, his musical partner in crime, and, you know, they, they just, they worked it, they worked it, and, you know, they get those showcases and, and book those shows, and people laughed at them, but they didn't give up, because they knew they had a winner, and they were absolutely right. And just to put it all in perspective, the original Bad Out of Hell record, you know, it's, at last count, it sold 14 million in America, it's, 24 million in Australia, 7 million UK. I mean, it's it's one of the best-selling albums of all time. And after that record, like he had like zero chart positions in America, like four records in a row of just nothing. And when he had this comeback, Bad Hell 2, 1993, that album went number 1 in every country that had a chart except for Norway I just found out went number two in Norway so he almost had a clean sweep I don't know any album that's ever done that so there you go and not the bad of hell too back into hell uh, has the same kind of numbers that the original has but I mean super respectable it's sold five million copies so far in the US nine million in Canada six million in the UK so it definitely is worthy of being called a comeback record for sure. It got him back into the spotlight. And, you know, he hasn't had an album as big since then. But I got to say, I mean, it's he's been putting out records consistently. And they at least go gold or platinum. And he still tours and people still show up. And that's all you can hope for. And, uh, you know, good on you, Meatloaf. I... You know, I respect Meatloaf. I, I, I really want to go see him live. I'm I'm sure he's still got it. I've seen footage. <laughs> so, yeah. Here you go. This was actually the... I'm going to play you uh, probably the most hard rock song on Bad Out of Hell 2, because that'll uh, probably ease some of you in there. Uh, and like I said, it couldn't be more over-the-top production-wise. It's an eight-minute song. It's crazy. Uh, this is Meatloaf from the album Bad Out of Hell 2, Back Into Hell, with... Life is a lemon and I want my money back. I 
guy that was born near my neck of the woods here, Dallas, Texas. That was Meatloaf with Life is a Lemon and I Want My Money Back from the album Bat Out of Hell 2, Back into Hell. Boy, those are mouthfuls, aren't they? You know, you, you think that some of those lyrics on there are autobiographical? You know, like basically just unapologetically wanting the comeback, wanting the money and the fame once again. So, you know, got to hand it to the directness of that song for sure. All right, the next comeback that I'm going to talk about is by a group called Heart. Now, this is one of those examples of a comeback that's very similar to Aerosmith's we talked about earlier. There's basically two different eras of sound and style for Aerosmith as well as there is for Heart. Heart's initial albums, uh, they came right out of the gate. Their first five records, all platinum sellers, and by 82, 83, they did Private Audition and Passion Works. Those albums completely tanked. Uh, they were definitely yesterday's news, uh, but they didn't give up. They, uh, they, they tracked down a, a very highly touted producer, Ron Nevison, who's done so many albums. I mean, I know he worked with the Babies, and he actually, I know he wanted to produce an Ozzy's Ultimate Sin album. He did Kiss's Crazy Night. So basically that big, like, big 80s style of, uh, you know, power pop, pop rock, and hard rock, Ron Nevison was like the guy. I mean, Kiss even took a year off of their schedule just to... um you know, have Ron Nevison produce their record. That's how much clout that guy had back in the day. Uh, so they do this album with Ron Nevison, and, you know, out of the ten songs on the album, half of them wind up being huge singles that, that, that chart very well. Uh, you know, the fifth one that they released, you know, the album had completely run its course, so it didn't get much attention. So as a way of spotlighting the massive comeback that was Heart, I'm going to play you this song. Uh, this was uh, this was kind of one of the once again one of the more harder rock numbers. This was actually the opener on the album, and I think it's a strong one. So here you go. This is from Hearts Comeback, 1985. This one's called "If Looks Could Kill." Me. You're missing the mark, shooting in the dark 
you know, you could make the argument, and, and rightfully so, that uh, Hart made their big comeback in the mid-80s, but at the expense of neutering their sound quite a bit. Uh, I can't really argue against that fact, because, you know, the, the proof is there. But, you know, I, I do still have to hand it to them, because, I mean, you can hear Anna Nancy Wilson really going for it on that record. I mean, they... They put a lot into their performances on that, so, you know, I'm not saying that that album is as good as Little Queen or Dreamboat Annie or anything, because those are great records, but, you know, I still have a soft spot for that comeback album in 1985. I mean, that was, once again, just like Aerosmith, that was the first time I really heard him, so I've backtracked since then, but, you know, I still have a soft spot for that material as well. And I, and yes, it's very 80s, it's, it's kind of, dated sounding for sure so you know hey but it, it is what it is and we're talking about comebacks you know so you know and, and speaking of powerful women in rock and roll and something that uh, i will definitely focus on more in the future for sure and talking about people that that change their style their production and and got a big hit out of it uh this one right here is probably the biggest example of that in the 80s. I'm going to play you something by Tina Turner. Now, you may not have expected me to play something by Tina Turner, but, you know, I gotta say, this is another one of those songs, just like the Heart song, where you're, you're going to hear the 80s production, but if you listen to the performance and, and the voice, if you you can, you can get through all the stuff that, that hasn't aged well. Uh, Tina Turner just sounded great on the Private Dancer album, you know, and she was really going for it once again. Like everybody on this list really deserves the credit for not sounding like they're mailing it in. I mean, it, they all had amazing comebacks, and this is this is one of the biggest ones for sure. I mean, Tina Turner, she had such a rough life, even while she was famous with you know with Ike and Tina Turner. Uh, if you've seen the movie about her, if you know anything about her, I mean, she was in an abusive relationship. And you know it 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 damaged her so much. I mean, but yeah, it's uh you know and it, it's not like she made a whole lot of money out of that. I mean, so she you know she had to start from scratch basically. She she moved out to England and was performing in clubs like in dives. And Tina came back and she was more successful than she'd ever been before ever. So uh, this is one of my favorite songs that she's ever done. And, you know, like I said, it doesn't sound classic anymore, really, but she, I just love the way she sounds on it, and just a great vocal performance, great delivery, tons of attitude. Uh, what's Tina Turner if she doesn't throw in a lot of attitude? And that's definitely what I like the most about her. So here you go. This is Tina Turner off the Private Dancer album. Uh, this thing, you know, it sold like 5 million copies. It won a bajillion Grammys. Uh, and here's one of the reasons why. This is a, a song, a, a nice, uh, a nice empowering song, regardless of whether you are a male or female. This is "Better Be Good to Me."
I don't care how 80s sounding the production is on that. I think that's a great friggin' song. And I was looking through the liner notes actually on the CD while the song was playing. And I think I found another reason why I like that song so much. Because it was written by Chin and Chapman, the team that wrote a lot of the sweet songs back in the 70s. 
and also Holly Knight, who uh, I know is someone who wrote some songs for Kiss in the 80s, so uh, right there, there's two examples. It totally makes sense now why that's one of my favorite Tina Turner songs, but I mean, she just kills on that track, so and you can't deny that. Alright, now, uh, last three songs here of the night. We're going to kick it back into the hard rock gear here. For those of you that were worrying about me, don't worry about me. I always get back there. Uh, going to play something by Black Sabbath. Now, not the Black Sabbath you may be as familiar with. Uh, basically, you know, Sabbath, God, they went through the ringer in the 80s. You know, after they broke up with Dio, uh, after the Live Evil album fiasco, they, you know, they went through a few different singers. And, you know, they always say, you know, I've seen tons of Sabbath documentaries, read books about them, and Tony Iommi has always said that, yeah, he he always conceived these albums not as Black Sabbath albums, but then the label pressured him to put them out as Black Sabbath. So uh, believe who you want to believe on that end. But basically, by the time the 90s rolled around, the Sabbath name really didn't mean as much, you know, due to all of these albums with different singers, and it just didn't seem right, you know. You know, I'm, Tony deserves to make a living for sure, but... You know, it's just one of those things. He probably should have stood his ground and, and had a solo project. And But, you know, things always do come around to the truly talented for the most part. Back in like 91, uh, made amends with Ronnie James Dio and put together the Mob Rules lineup once again back in the studio and put out the album Dehumanizer. Now, yeah... Actually, believe it or not, Dehumanizer is one of the first two or three CDs I ever owned. And the collection has expanded quite a bit since then. But I remember that being one of my first CDs. So I listened to this album a lot. So it's a personal favorite of mine. And it, it never got its due, really. I mean, yeah, at the time it came out, it was definitely... It, it improved the band as far as chart positioning. And they were able to have a really decent tour. But I still feel like the album really didn't get its due until they got back together with Dio for the third time. And I think once they put out that Best of Dio Years album, and they did their two big tours with Ronnie, and they started playing a lot of this material, I think people finally came around and was like, hey, that's a really good album. So that's why I'm including it here in the Comebacks album, because much like we talked about with the Johnny Cash one, this was like a creative comeback, and... You could feel the juices flowing really heavy on this one. Uh, so if you like heavy metal, definitely pick up the Dehumanizer album by Black Sabbath. You got Ronnie James Dio, Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, and Vinnie Appice. And, and they are definitely playing with a purpose on that album. So here's an example of that. Just going to get right into the rock. This is Black Sabbath with TV Crimes. <laughs>
That was Black Sabbath featuring the late great Ronnie James Dio on vocals there with TV Crimes. And that's also especially dedicated with my thoughts going out to the man, Tony Iommi, who's uh, been diagnosed with lymphoma, a form of cancer, the, the same kind that killed Joey Ramone. And I hope they detected it early enough, and I hope you get well soon, Tony, because we, we really don't want to lose another one of you like that. Hang in there, Tony, and uh, keep Tony in your thoughts. Go go check out his stuff. Uh, check out his, his amazing legacy. And, uh, yeah, all right, I'm going to stop being a downer here. But, yeah, Black Sabbath TV Crimes, that was some heavy stuff. Always fun. And here's another band. You know, I've played this band a few times on the show before, but uh, definitely deserving of the comeback list. going to play something by Iron Maiden here. 
And uh, this is off their album Brave New World from the year 2000. Uh, Iron Maiden, uh, Bruce Dickinson, their their most famous singer, had uh, you know left the band or had been fired uh, after the Fear of the Dark tour around 92, 93. And they got this guy Blaze Bailey to come in. They did a couple of records with him, and you know nothing really wrong with those albums, but it just didn't have the same feel to it. You know, Dickinson's vocals are so powerful. Just, you know, for fans like myself and pretty much everybody else, nothing else is going to do. You need those big, huge operatic vocals. And Bruce Dickinson can deliver them. And I I like that they all seem to be getting along really well. And, you know, they they tour the world and they play stadiums. And and that's that's a comeback right there. So here you go. This is a a cool, uh, rarely heard song deep cut from the Brave New World album. Uh, This is kind of similar to a few of their other songs like The Trooper and The Wicker Man from the Brave New World album, but I I still like the song a lot. I think it's a really cool metal track. So here you go. This is a nice, powerful one. This one's called The Mercenary.
that was Iron Maiden with the Mercenary from their 2000 release, Brave New World. That's a, a very, very good Maiden record, so one, one of their top ones for sure. And they've been putting out, in my opinion, putting out great material since that 2000 album. Just uh, their comeback so far with Bruce Dickinson. It, it's like they're a different band in a way because their new stuff is a lot more epic, a lot more prog-oriented, and they've always kind of been like that, but they're really embracing it. So, you know, their albums have a lot of uh, really long songs on there, but I think that they're really, really good, solid records top to bottom. So especially if you're a fan of musicianship, then you should check those records out for sure. Now we've come to the last song here on Rock Strikes 10. Much like I mentioned with Tom Petty earlier in the episode, this guy seems to have permanent residence here on the show. But uh, this guy had a, a great comeback in 1989. I'm going to play something by the man, Alice Cooper. I obviously a big Alice fan. Uh, the reason why he's on the comeback list is, you know, he, he had consistent platinum records in the 70s. But after his 1976 album, Alice Cooper Goes to Hell, you know, had gone gold here in the U.S. And literally every album after that from 1977 on, so 13 years, uh, he had zero certifications, no gold albums, no platinum albums in the States at all. So by the early 80s, his albums weren't even charting. I mean, he uh, had a mini comeback like in the mid-80s, had a couple of more uh, metal-oriented albums, and, and they did pretty good, but... You know, they were just kind of, uh, they they just kind of did okay. It wasn't the success that Alice had achieved in the 70s. But in 1989, there were a lot of people that stepped up and wanted to work with Alice. And they made his comeback a reality, for sure. And it was nice of them to do that. He hooked up with Desmond Child, who was the big uh, hit songwriter of the time. He did songs for Bon Jovi and Aerosmith and Kiss. So, uh and he wrote he helped co-write this song as well that I'm going to play for you here. This was a huge single for Alice. And since it's such a huge song, there's no need for me to play it really on Rock Strikes 10, but I'm going to there's going to be a little a nice bonus uh, surprise here. I'm going to play you the song Poison by Alice Cooper, but I'm going to play it off of the special edition that I got of the Welcome to My Nightmare album from last year. This is a live track from the Download Festival. Download Festival 2011. This is Alice Cooper with Poison. There you go.
Uh, now, I mentioned before that song that Alice had some help with uh, some uh, some fans of his and friends of his. Uh, some of the people that contributed to that album, Trash, in 1989, uh, run the gambit of people in rock. I mean, yeah, you have uh, John Bon Jovi, Richie Sambor, of course, big time, especially in the 80s. Uh, Diane Warren, who was a huge songwriting person, still is, but, I mean, she's known for that Titanic song. I mean, she wrote one of the biggest songs ever. And she also wrote Aerosmith's biggest hit, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. So she co-wrote Bed of Nails on Trash, which is probably one of the heavier songs on there. So that's wild. Uh, I know Michael Anthony of Van Halen did a lot of background vocals on the album. So uh, I'd love to have Michael Anthony sing background on my album and make it way better. And... Steven Tyler does a duet with him on the ballad Only My Heart Talking. But even after all of that, probably the weirdest thing on the Trash album is the fact that one of the backup singers credited is Stiv Baders, who's like one of the primo punk guys of all time for me. I mean, he was in the Dead Boys, and Stiv Baders' solo stuff is just killer. It's amazing. So (laughs) running the gamut from uh, one of Celine Dion's songwriters to Stiv Bader's on one album. That is classic Alice Cooper. And and also, I mentioned before that, uh, you know, between 76 and 89, he had, like, no chart positioning in here. That doesn't mean that those albums are bad. Uh, quite the contrary. I think there's some terrific material on all of those albums, and they're worth checking out. I'm probably going to do a special show on Alice sometime in the future. And, uh, you know, so stay tuned for that. I'm going to play nothing but really obscure Alice Cooper songs that I think that you're going to love. So mark that down. That one's coming soon. Maybe on Alice's birthday. How about that? So, all right, we've come to the end of the show. I, I hope you enjoyed the show. And, you know, I was talking about, you know, I grew up with some of these comebacks. And some of these were my first exposures to these particular artists. So... If you're maybe an older person than I am, I would be really interested in your opinion of some of this material because, you know, like I said, I know some Aerosmith fans that hate the new stuff and hate the comeback stuff. So if you grew up with the original run of some of these artists and you witnessed the comeback, of course, if you were following them still, you know, send me an email. Let me know what you think of some of the stuff that I spotlighted here today. Did you like it? Did you not like it? Yeah, I'm just curious. I always like opinions, and I, I think it makes the show better. So a way that you can do that is to go to cnjradio.com, send me an email. I do read and respond to all the emails. I thank everyone who takes the time out to do that. Or if you just send a message on Facebook, I love that as well. Spread the word. Share that information. Every time I post an episode, if you could please share it, that would really make my day. Go to iTunes. Subscribe if you haven't already. Very important to subscribe because those episodes do disappear after a while. And please leave a review on iTunes as well. All right, enough of my begging and my yakking and my plugging. Uh, Have a good one. And to make up for the fact that it took me damn near two weeks to do a show, you will get another new show in 48 hours. How about that? Coming up on the next episode of Rock Strikes 10. Going to play nothing but B-sides. So tune in. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and have a good one. Bye.